Luke has been so refreshing to me, has been so practical and so um, really convicting in a lot of ways. I mean, there's a lot of truth statements and truth lessons, life lessons that are filtered throughout all of the teachings of Jesus. But also, it's been very affirming to the, the foundational knowledge of who Christ is and who God is and what his plan is and what eternity is about, what this thing called the kingdom of God is that's coming. And we've covered those things now over and over and over, but um, I just don't think that we can ever get too much of it, right? And so Luke has been really fantastic. So let's just start by going back to the, our purpose statement. And I don't, I'm not going to write it down because I don't want to take up room on the board for this, but tell me what you understand about the author's purpose for writing and where do we find it? Very good. Excellent. That's chapter one. And actually those first four verses basically are, are a complete uh, testimony as to why he wrote and who and who he was writing to and what his intended goal was. So he d that's exactly what it was, Kathy. He wants you to know the exact truth about the things that you've been taught. And when he talks about the fact that he had investigated, what what does that now mean to you when he says he investigated these things? Yes. And how valuable to us is uh, the knowledge of eyewitness? Now, if you have one eyewitness, it's great, right? But how many eyewitnesses do we have in the Gospel of Luke? Oh, hundreds, right? Because almost every account, well, with the exception of parables, which are not necessarily um, eyewitness accounts, but of all the records of things like, like starting at the beginning with Mary and with uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist and then the nefarious disciples and each one of them had to have been interviewed in order to tell their story of what they saw and where they were when it occurred and you know the gist of the message that was taught and therefore if you if you ex the more you exponentially multiply a witness account the more credible it is the more um the stronger that evidence becomes to us, right? So to me, that's one of those really high qualities. Now, it's very interesting. In the, in the Gospel of Luke, there are so many doctrinal points that come up that can rub uh, against certain people's uh, doctrinal teachings, their backgrounds, depending on what church that they come from or what even... I mean, we even have, and I don't... Um, you may not all know all this, but there are even people in our classes that come from non-conventional, I just put it that way, churches. And so a lot of the teachings that they are coming in with in their minds are taught through the dogma of that church. And therefore, when we start bringing up some of these truth statements or these, these facts about heaven and hell and salvation and relationship with God and I mean just all kinds of points there is often a rub and so you have to try to get to a place when you're working with people that they can come to a foundational truth about what they believe is true about the word of God now we have not gone into that 
quality of it in this class in m quite a long, long time, actually. But back when we teach things like Second Timothy and um, some of these other fundamental studies that you learn when you first go to precept and you first learn how to do inductive study, they want you to understand the inerrancy of the Word of God and how we, how we can um, confidently tell a person, this is God's Word, this is, it's inerrant, it's infallible. You know, if there's conflict with, with or, or seeming conflict with information within it, it's because of short sightings on our side. We need to work through it deeper until we figure it out because God's word does not contradict itself. Uh, God's word always bears itself to be true. I found an article in my Bible last night. I just kind of thumbed through it, but uh, it was one of my apologetics teachings I think I did when we did uh, Genesis. And I went through and said, these are the apologetics for how you know the word of God is true. And it talked about how it's apologetically proven through science and through um, historical uh, references and through archaeological dig finds that confirm through, I mean, the, the list just like four or five points in there. And it, with every one of them, what they do is it continues to solidify and build and strengthen the fact that what is written here, these are not, uh, even the parables have truth qualities to them. And we have to be willing to say on a fundamental basis that God's word is the standard that we are going to stand on. Remember a few weeks back I gave you my, my testimony of being in Greece and sitting in a standard and how you, how you uh, in, the, in Greece they would take a, a, a pot and put it into the standard if it fit they would keep the pot and use it, and otherwise they would break it and take it to the refuse pile. And that ties into where God's word says to retain the standard of sound doctrine. Now, I say all that to say back to the opening of this, the purpose statement, that you may know the exact truth. You and I, as, as inductive students, one of, the, one of the important things that we're doing is training ourselves to be able to apologetically stand on the word of God and explain to somebody if they're willing to listen, right? But to explain to them logically and compassionately, but also emphatically that God's word is God's word and it's truth. And that if, they, if there's a conflict in their life with what they are reading in the word of God and with what their church has taught them or with their background experiences have taught them, they need to come to a place of reality where they believe that God's word is the, is the authority, right? Now, how does that tie in with what we looked at this week in Luke's uh, 15 and 16? Oh, I know. I'm making you stretch already, aren't I? I'm jumping right in. What, what did Jesus speak to the Pharisees about the law and the prophets and about what was taught before and what is now taught with John? And what was his point? When you, when you hit Luke 16, I'm just bringing that up because it ties in with this opening, and I'm gonna, we'll jump back to the beginning, I promise. But I wanted to hit that, that Luke 16 area because uh, he says in verse 16, 16, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries one 
uh, one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now, um, uh, Kathy, it was you that said, I'm going, scratching my head saying, what, what is that talking about? It seems like it's hitting like three different things in there all at once. Is it? What do you think is going on there? Tell me. Excellent. But yet saying that the law still has purpose, still has salvation. Right. And in his example, something Yeah, this is the toughest part of the Bible, really, for Christians to handle accurately because we know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are placed within the New Testament, correct? But more than three-fourths of every one of those books are actually under the, under the Old Testament law right? They're still not in the new. The new has not been inaugurated until Jesus goes to the cross. And so until the end of those books, you are not in the New Testament yet. You're not in the new covenant. So Jesus is working this transition time, preparing people's hearts for this new thing that's come through the, the forerunner. And who was the forerunner? John the Baptist, who came to do what? To prepare the way. And he, and he preached what kind of a gospel? That's right. Bab, the, the repentant, the baptism, he preached, bab, thanks, I'm sorry, say it again. For, yes, by repentance. So you, get rep, you repent and then you're baptized. Thank you. This is going to be a tough morning, you guys. <laughs> My brain usually works better, but it's not doing so good right now. Okay. Um, so, but in, in, in the opening of Luke 1, where he says these things that you may know about, the exact things about what you have been taught, things were carefully investigated. You have eyewitness accounts. It is the exact truth that's written for you. And the fact that we have an inerrant, um, literal word of God that is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for doctrine, for correction, for training in righteousness... Therefore, whenever the word of God is brought up here, whenever the gospel of the kingdom to come is brought up, we're seeing this transition from the prophet and the laws to that which is being preached by Jesus and had been prepared for uh, through John the Baptist, through the forerunner. And so now in Luke 16, it gets brought up again to these Pharisees who are yet living under the law, right? And they're really rejecting the new gospel that Jesus is preaching. They're angry about it in every turn. Um, but Jesus, therefore, what does he do? What is his little, what is this move? It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one stroke of the letter of the law. What, what, why does he bring that up? What, what is he saying there? Yes. Yes. Right? Exactly. He's not here to abolish. Okay. Okay. So by the fact that he brings up one particular law, what does that tell you about what was going on with the Pharisees at that time. Yes, there you go. That's exactly what it is. He's basically pointing out, 
and a, con um, a condoning by the Pharisees to allow for divorce, and he's bringing it up. So first he makes a fact statement. He says, not one letter of the law is going to pass away, that it won't be fulfilled. Then he says, um, everyone who divorces and does such and such, these people are going to be uh, uh, in trouble because they are committing adultery. And what you are doing, Pharisees, leaders of the people, you are condoning for them to commit sins. Now, I've said this so many times, and we'll say it right now again. What is the picture in marriage? Why does God so, so strongly want to preserve the picture of marriage? Why is that one in particular something that he, he tends to hone in on every time when he looks at their violations? Because it's connected to covenant. And pictorially, what is that picture in marriage? Christ and the church. Amen. Sister, you did it good. That's exactly right. So if it's, if it's Christ and the church and they're destroying the picture, it's kind of like the temple. The temple was a picture, right? A picture of the coming Christ and all the articles and all the, the, um, the sacrifices and all the, thing, the, the uh, things that they would do in that temple service. Everything was to point to Jesus, the one who was coming, the seed the son of man, right, that was to come. And if you, if you in any way um, disturbed or, or polluted or distorted those pictures, right, it was going to mess up their understanding when the Christ came as to who he was, like the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right, which is a common thing for, for us to understand. So, in this account here, where we're seeing Jesus do now is he's rebuking these leaders because they are holding fast to the law, but not actually obeying the law. They're not really enforcing the law. What have they done with the law? Yes, okay. And? Pardon? Okay, in a way, yes, it's very legalistic for them, right? Right, right. But what else do they do concerning laws? There you go. They're making up their own as they go along, which is basically, I think, what Jesus is alluding to here. He doesn't say it, but he's saying, you know, not one of these uh, letters of the law will pass away, right? Not a stroke of the letter of the law will fail. And everyone who divorces his wife, and that, what is he saying when he says that? Not one stroke of the pen is going to fail. Everything I said in the Old Testament about marriage is going to stand. And he says, and everyone who divorces his wife is going to be in big trouble. They are committing adultery. And this adultery is polluting my picture, right? I mean, he doesn't say that, but that is all that's behind that. And so by linking these three points together, he's saying to the Jews, to the, the Pharisees, rather, and the Sadducees, and those leaders of the, of the temple, he's saying, you are claiming to follow God, but you're not. You are claiming to obey God's laws, but they're not God's laws, they're yours. And, and he says, and so he says, you know, in verse 15, that which highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. These men had, had brought themselves both financially and power position-wise 
into a place where the people respected them, and that's what they were after. And God is, God is looking at their heart. What does he say about their heart? He knows their heart, right? And one of the things he said before that, he says, these Pharisees, you guys are lovers of money. That's what I see when I see your heart. And the lovers of money, now he doesn't go on, but it's all, they're also lovers of power and position position. I think it's in Luke 11. Do you remember Luke 11? The woes? Flip back to Luke 11 real quick. Um, let's see if I can find it. I think it's in 11. Yes, uh, 42 to 50, 52. But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithes of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. And then one of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. <laughs> and then Jesus says, Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to offend. Please don't, please don't be upset with me. No, he says, ah, woe to you lawyers as well. <laughs> For you weigh down men with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approved uh, of the deeds of your father, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them a prophet and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of the knowledge you yourselves do not enter, and you hinder those who are entering. Wow. That, and to me, that is what I think applies right here. So you might want to write Luke 11 right there in the, as a cross-reference for you about this section 16 to 18, where it's talking about the law and the prophets. Um, and also you might want to put a reference there about, or to yourself just about the, the authority of the word of God. You know, if we cannot train ourselves, first of all, our own hearts have to be open to it, to be trained that the final authority for you and I is the word of God, not the laws and the rules of men. Church doctrines, hopefully, are based on biblical doctrine, but sometimes they're not, and you need to know the difference, and the only way you know the difference is if you know the word of God. Fortunately, that's why you're here, and I know that all of you are being you know, given at least the insights and the training. And so I'm so thankful for every one of you for your commitment, for being here, for applying yourself. This is hard work. I mean, it's hours, right? We're all tired on Monday morning because we worked so hard on the weekend to get through this. But it, it well, you know, we do. And it's, but it is so important because Jesus is literally saying to these men right here, you are failing to recognize that my word from beginning to end is truth and is, and is that which men will both live or die by. You will, it's unchangeable. Every letter will be, every stroke of the pen will be fulfilled. 
Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, that is exactly what I was just saying, that it is known actually through even the writings and the records of the Pharisees, and in particular at this time, remember, they were doing all kinds of violations at this point. I mean, they were hardly, you could hardly even call it a correct temple anything really at that time, although it was a, sh it was a vague shadow of what it should have been. Um, but yes, they were uh, condoning and allowing all kinds of things. And what I just read over here talks about them who disregard justice and the love of God, um, but they pay tithe and mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. I mean, they're, they're particular on the itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny things, things that bring in money for them. But on the big things, like loving God and loving your fellow man, forget it just out the window. And here now in, in Luke 16, he brings up marriage because I think he brings marriage up because for me uh, and for all of us who've done covenant studies together so many times, marriage is probably the most holy um, picture of Christ in the church that God has next to, you know, Jesus be himself being our Savior. I mean, how do, it's almost like our parable, but it's not a parable. It's a reality co uh, comparison. Um, husband and wife relationship in marriage, we see it all throughout the Old Testament as well, where uh, the prophet, maybe, for instance, one of the prophets was told to go and marry a prostitute, and he goes through this whole, is, was that in Ezekiel? I can't remember. Anyway, and he, t he goes through this whole or we studied it when we were in Ezekiel. I can't remember who. It was one of the other prophets. Hi, who? Hosea, maybe. Yeah. And he was told to go and marry a prostitute. And the whole picture was about the adultery of Israel against their God. Why that picture? Again, because marriage is the picture of the relationship between God and his people. And fidelity and love and faithfulness, all those things. And so in, and in Ephesians chapter 5, you see the New Testament relation, picture of it, of Christ in the church. And it, go, it is a very, go in and read that Ephesians 5 chapter again to refresh your mind on that. I think he brings this one specifically up exactly for what you said, Lisa, Lisa because th these, are, these are men who were condoning and allowing, but they were mostly doing it for their own financial and and benefit their own personal benefit too if they had a wife they didn't want to keep anymore right okay so that's kind of the the backdrop to why this book was written the authority of what's within written within it it's so important for us to look at e each part w as we're moving and transcending through it we need to make sure we understand the type of literary work we're working with so let's talk about that one more time what is this literary work? What kind of literary art are we looking at here? Okay, it is historical. So, so it's, a, it's a record about whom, primarily? Mm -hmm. About Jesus, and what are the major subjects in this book? Very obviously, the kingdom of God. That Christ as being the Son of Man, and what do we know about Christ being the Son of Man? What have we learned? Right. 
There you go. That's the most important one, I think, it, just so that you all catch that, that as the Son of Man, he is the, the seed who was promised and he's come, right? And so he was the incarnate, and which is described for us in chapter 1 and 2, which is unique to Luke alone. It shows how the seed was, was uh, uh conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit and that he was then born of flesh and therefore every time he's made mention of us as being the son of man you need to always go back to the Garden of Eden what happened in the Garden of Eden that we needed a seed to come sin okay Adam and Eve sinned and when Adam and Eve sinned what were the consequences the various consequences of that sin Okay, number one, separation from God. So now we have, we have a king who does not, no longer dwells with us, right, where before he dwelt. Thank you for helping me that last week. Thank you, thank you. Um, okay, so we have a king who um, no longer dwells with us or walks with us in the garden, so to speak, as it says in Genesis. Um, that's number one. So we have a broken kingdom relationship. What else? We have death and, and, and what else? disease right so we have death and disease we have the broken kingdom we have what else who was the one that came and tempted satan so we have spiritual warfare right so when we are looking through the gospel of luke so far what are the things that we keep seeing jesus battle against that the seed of man was to come and crush the head of satan for for what Death, disease, sin, the broken kingdom, all those things are what he's come to restore for us. So if you understand that the son of man title refers to the seed that was promised in Genesis, and again in, in, in Genesis 3, but again in Genesis 15 to Abraham, and then you go into Galatians 3, and it teaches you that it, that seed is Christ, so if you connect those things together and pull it all in, you see that one of our major subjects in this book, the Son of Man as the seed, is an essential thing for you to grab hold of. Because if you miss it, you miss a lot about why are, I mean, otherwise it just looks like an a, a accumulation together, an accounting of a, a lot of miracles and a lot of encounters and a lot of, you know, uh, kind of spiritual battles that are going on. And, and, the, and you see the spiritual warfare and you see the healings, but you don't connect the dots to this is why the seed was promised. He came to do exactly what we're seeing him do here in Luke. Isn't that exciting to tie that together in that way? Because now it really makes sense. It's kind of like you got the background to why is this, this record an exact account of these things which have happened? Okay, so we've got the kingdom of God. We've got Jesus as the son of man. Obviously, we have God and the Holy Spirit, right? What are some other major subjects that we've uh, seen in this study? Well, what are you seeing this week in your study? What are some major subjects? I'll make it easy. <laughs> Wealth was one thing, th the conversation about wealth. Now, what I found interesting was how wealth is being used. Now, tell me, how do you, um, how do you see, is wealth the major subject or kind of the, the backdrop in order to discuss higher issues? 
it really is kind of a backdrop. Is it's almost like he uses that as kind of a storyline, but then he's making a, a higher point, right? So he's going from the lesser to the greater again. That is a very typical Hebrew style of teaching from the lesser to the greater. And one of the perfect examples of that was when we saw the um, the prodigal manager that we're going to look at. In, was that in 15? Let's go back. Let me get back to my other sheets here. Where we're looking at the... Um, it's in 16, where the prodigal manager is brought up. So again, he's wor wor operating from the lesser to the greater. So what he does is he kind of has these backdrop stories. Uh, why do you think money? Why do you think money becomes such a big backdrop? Okay, all right. How, do you think that's really changed in humanity throughout the ages? Money is still a problem, is it not? Um, one, I, I listened to a sermon this week, and I, I don't remember who it was, but I think they said something like two-thirds of all parables somehow tie back to money and assets and possessions. So it's, it's very interesting. I mean, then, then there's other subjects that come up as well, but primarily money seems to get filtered into all of them. It seems like it's a driving um, subject matter in, in a lot of, of Jesus' parables. Now, what is a parable? Tell me what a parable's purpose is. There you go. It's a story that illustrates a point. It's an earthly story that we can relate to and identify with that has a heavenly meaning, right? Um, w I had a call from one of my students this week who said, okay, I've gotten into this parable of this prodigal manager. I am so confused. <laughs> Tell me what's going on here. And I said, okay, remember, there's in parables, there primarily is one primary point that's being made, sometimes two but usually at least one major one. And what you're going to look for is the conclusion statements with each of those parables. Did you find that to be true even when we did chapter 15 with the, the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, that in the end there was some kind of, was there a key repeated phrase that you saw in all three of those that tied those three storylines together for Luke 15? Yeah, so that word rejoice became really a key word for that particular chapter, didn't it? So he says over and over again that, the, that after he tells this story that has to do with an earthly thing they can relate to, then he moves to the heavenly and he says, this is what's going on in the heavens. So it's almost like he says this temporal place called earth, but there's a heavenly reality that's actually going on behind it. And that's the purpose for parables is to help us better understand the heavenly, which we haven't been to yet, and therefore we're strug we struggle sometimes to totally clarify. All right, so those are our key words, um, kingdom, salvation, repentance, sin, forgiveness, and I added in woe and Hades this week onto my list as well. But I also streamlined and kind of cut out some of the others that I found as I've moved along. They've become seemingly a little less dominant, okay, for in my perspective on what I'm seeing here in, in Luke, but just to try to hone it down, here's, here's my full list. Jesus, and being the Son of Man, God the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, 
which includes prophecy, the gospel, the truth, all those synonyms, right? The kingdom of God, which is super duper important in this book. Salvation, repentance, sin, forgiveness, and then the woes. Now, I put it in that way because there are so many places in here where Jesus comes back to them and he either rebukes them or he corrects them, right? And sometimes he also pronounces the, these, well, like, for instance, the woes. Were those woes parables? No. Those were as plain spoken as they can get. When we move into chapter 16 and he starts talking to them about Lazarus and hell, place called Hades rather, Hades or Sheol is its synonym, um, is that reality or parable? That is reality. And if you, don't, if you didn't pick up on that, all you have to do is set the full context for the chapter. Let's do that very quickly right now before we start on the rest of, go, we're going to start to go through it now and get our titles. But when you look at one to nine, what do you have? In 16, yes, chapter 16. Because we know the chapter 15 is all parables. It keeps telling you so, which makes it very nice, right? And now what do we have in this one? Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man. Another parable. Now how do we know it's a parable? No name is vague, right? It's a man, it's a woman, it's a shepherd, it's a sheep, it's a, you know, it's kind of those nondescript kind of things. It's no, no actual names, no, no historical context to nail to it, no historical figure that can identify it clearly, right? So when it's just a man, a son, a brother, a dog, a horse, a whatever, I'm just making things up now, but, you know, when it's just generic, that is when you can pretty well tell that it is a, uh, actually a parable if it does not say so. Okay, and then, okay, and then when you hit verse 10, what happens? Is it, is it still parable, or have we moved on to another? And now he's into teaching. So teaching is interpreted how? Literally and factual. I'm just making it clear. I just want you to know this because, you know, sometimes the most obvious things are the things that you miss. <laughs> and so it's just important for you to note when you're working into in inductively that you are working with the literary form that you know you're in. You need to identify your literary form. Well, you just came out of a parable, and now you've switched to reality. Th these are factual points that he is now going to begin to make. And once he does that, does he ever stop making factual points? When he hits down to the part about it's a rich man, I, I, how many of you found commentaries that said this was a parable? Did anybody look at your, par at your commentaries? <coughs> yeah. Did you find some that were saying, oh, this was a parable? Okay. All right. Now, how would you rebut that? What would you say to say, no, this is a reality story, and how do we know that? There you go. The man has a name, Lazarus, right? Okay. Um, and is Hades a literal place that these people would have ever seen or touched or been to? No. But do they know about it? Is it Old Testament teaching that's clear to the Jew? Yes. Okay. So there's that. Then also, what about historical 
points of reference. Is there anything to nail it down that it has real context for history? Abraham. There you go. So now we have got a, we've got a historical anchor, we've got a name anchor, and we've got a, a known doctrine from the Old Testament. All three of these make this fact, not, not parable. So with that in mind, it makes sense actually because if he does verses 1 to 9 in a parable and then he falls back into factual teaching starting in 10 all the way to the end, now you, what you're seeing is a clear teaching. What does that tell you then when after he's rebuked these Pharisees in 14 to 16 about their lack of obeying God's word and actually following it, then he goes in and he starts talking about... Um, this rich man, what does that tell you he's actually doing for the Pharisees here? It's actually very loving. It, it sounds mean, but it's not. Yes, he is talking to those Pharisees. I mean, he's actually talking to everybody, but most specifically the Pharisees. And when he's talking to them, what is he, what is he trying to do? Warn them and correct them. They've got a misconception about th what their truth values are. And we'll talk through that now, now that we've laid foundation. Okay, so now this is where we're at for today. It's not a great review of everything, but I think it kind of gives you a good review of kind of the big picture of what we've covered so far in Luke and why we're, we're at where we're at and what it is that Jesus is approaching here. So now what we want to do is we want to go through Luke, start back at Luke 15. This one should not take us too long to get through. 15 is pretty clear and not, you know, it's not really a difficult to understand section, but let's see what we can do here. All right, so Luke 15 verses 1 and 2. Give me your, par your paragraph title for that. What did you see going on in verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15? Yes, that's exactly right. The Pharisees are grumbling. Yeah, and, and the Pharisees grumble. And what are they grumbling at? Concerning Jesus. Yeah, exactly. The fact that Jesus seems to have compassion and concern for people who are sinners. Now, why is that a problem for them? How, what, is that, what does that tell you about their view? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They are, they are very arrogant. There's a, there's a verse that I just love that it's in Micah is it 4, 6, I think. It says, what does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? They do not do that very well at all, right? Okay, so Pharisees grumble at Jesus' compassion for sinners, right? Or however you want to state that. Uh, you can state it whatever, but this is your main title, that Pharisees grumble. Okay, th then you move to 3 to 7 for the next paragraph, and what do we have there? Another, we have a parable. And what is this parable? Mm -hmm. The lost sheep. Now tell me what you learn about the lost sheep. What is the, what is the, um, after the whole story, well, tell me what was going on in that parable.
Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. Oh. And I'm a Pharisee. <laughs> I'm the whitewashed tomb. <laughs> because I grew up in the church and thought I was just fine, right, until Jesus came for me. So, yeah, boy, it is, a, it is an amazing story. So just for the one, so what was the, what was the, ver the verse that you found that kind of tied it all up into the message that he was, or the point that he was making? Verse 7 Yes, there is joy in heaven. So joy in heaven over one lost or one sinner who repents. That's in verse 7. Very good. All right, now let's go to 8 to 10. We have a similar parable. These are pretty clear. Tell me what you see in 8 to 10. Okay. And what happens there? Again, it's, it's a repeat, isn't it? It's, it's almost word for word. There's a joy of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I'm sorry, explain that to me. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't catch that. Oh, yeah. Exponentially, it moves it into smaller. And yet, you know, what it makes me think of when you say that then is what happened when Abraham or when Lot was bargaining for the city, right, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, very interesting. Very neat. That's a good. That's a good one. So that it doesn't matter whether you're one in a hundred or whether you're one in ten. You're of that much value to him. And so it, in this case, it's a woman, and the, you know, there's a lot of history behind the the Middle Eastern women and how they wore their coins, which is their treasures, around their neck, and they would often even tuck them into their into their garments, undergarments, so that they would be safe. And this woman apparently had lost one, and it was of so much value to her that she did not waste any time, and she spent the whole night looking for that, dusting every corner and, and looking around until she found it. And so then, then she was so delighted. She didn't just jump up and down and say, yay, yay, yay. I found my wedding ring. I misplaced it. Like I, I did that a few weeks ago, and I found it, and I was very excited. But I did not celebrate, and I did not have a party, but... I should have, huh? <laughs> no, maybe not. <laughs> so it, it, she says in 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So her story also is to illustrate the same point. That who, who, so tell, tell me what does this show you about God? What does this show you about him? Okay, compassion for it just... There's a, a verse in the New Testament about he desires that, what? None perish, right? That no, not one. He desires that all come to repentance and to be saved. So it, his, he is, yes, there's another point, actively pursuing after us, watching us. He's paying attention. He notices when one is missing or when one is lost. 
he sees that lost one. So when you take that into what Jesus was doing when he entered into this uh, environment with these Pharisees, they're scoffing at him. They're, they're upset with him. They're grumbling because Jesus has compassion for sinners. But the contrast is how God views it. God's view of the sinner is that everyone is of value to him. And even one that turns he causes, causes rejoicing in heaven. It's I know. Isn't that amazing? Yes, yes. I know, I know. And, and it kind of ties in then when you go later to the parable of the bad manager when he's talking about, you know, you too as believers, you to prepare for that day when we you enter into heaven and those people will be there waiting for you. If you are seeking the lost and bringing them in those lost people who die and go before you they're waiting in heaven for you and trust me they will be rejoicing when you show up to thank you that you shared the gospel that you shared your finances you shared your time you shared your energy you shared your resources whatever it is that you did for them the acts of kindness and the and the financial assistance all those things matter because if you're building the eternity right? God, God is rejoicing. They will be rejoicing also when you arrive. This is just amazing how this whole thing really ties together. Okay, so now let's go to, uh-huh. Um, I think there's a scripture in Hebrews that talks about we have this great cloud of witnesses, right? Um, y yes, they, um, but they do not see from heaven right now. Because here's what you have to remember about human beings. We are finite. And our fi finiteness does not change when we enter into the heavenly realm. Uh, this picture that we've got, this glimpse that we've gotten as we've looked in Luke 16 with going into Hades and being there and and just parsing that out this week what did you see about the reality of those who are there can they can they travel back and forth can they see back and forth can they because people are coming in Yeah, okay, now that's speaking about the, sp the angels. Angels, the angels. Yes, the spiritual angels definitely have knowledge because they are ministering servants, and they are all over the world and the globe, and they are watching. But humans who die and go to heaven, no. No, this is where, you know, this is where this, this bad understanding about spirits and ghosts and stuff that get on TV and all. It's just, a, it's a bunch of baloney. And Christians ought to know better. When you die, you die. And you are either with God or you are in, in this place of torment, one or the other, right? And you, because you are finite, you, are st you still have that, that, that um, restriction, basically, because we're not God. We, do never, we never become God. Now, we will get exponential knowledge and better vision and better understanding when we are with him but we are not infinite beings and we're not all seeing and we are not all knowing so we do not and we do not watch from heaven the affairs of earth 
per se. What we do do, though, according to this, is we are there waiting when people come. That's what it, it, this uh, parable teaches us. Uh, the two different parables, actually. The, one, the first one with the bad manager shows that there are those who will be waiting for us when we come and they rejoice when we enter. That's when the re their rejoicing occurs. The angels, however, are rejoicing as they watch these things occur. Okay? Th it, th it's talking about their testimony and their witness of, of all the truth through the ages being fulfilled and that as we enter in, but still it's our entry. The cloud of witnesses does not mean they're watching us from heaven. They do not see from heaven. God does. Yes, that's really what that's talking about. The witnesses, the wi their witness of testimony to us. That's exact. That's a good point. Right. Hebrews is the is called the hallmark of faith or the hall of fame, faith. Right. And their faith is a witness to us. They are so great a cloud of witnesses, not witnesses as in looking at us, but they are witnesses for us to look at to say. Oh, look how Abraham did that. Look how Job did that. Look how Sarah did that. Look how, right? And there I w as, as a testimony or a witness to me, I am to follow in their example of faith. That's what that verse is talking about. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Because, I mean, it is, I mean, there's so many times I hear people talk about these heaven and hell things. Today's lesson, I think, is going to be uh, really helpful for those who haven't done it in a long time, just to review. And for those who have never done it, you're going to love getting through what we're going to get through here in a second. Okay, so 11 to 24 is another parable, right? This is the well-known one. I'm just going to put the lost son. It could be the prodigal son, which is commonly referred to. And again, what do we see as the result of, of that story? We know it so well. What happens? Yep, he's lost and found. That's very good, very concise. You're right. He was lost and found. All right. <laughs> we're done. That's what it says in verse 24. He was lost and he has been found, so we're, we're good. Okay, and what was the result then after that? And they what? And they began to celebrate. So the conclusion to the parable of the lost son who went wayward, he blew all his money, he, he totally disrespected his father and the inheritance, and then at some point his heart turns. And, there's, there's a, and, and if you go into a lot of detail on that one to parse it all out, it's a beautiful storyline. It could be a whole sermon and we could spend hours on it, but we're not going to do that because it's, I think the, the point to the message for you and I today is, what was lost was found, and they celebrated because of that. And it was a dead and alive, yes. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Okay, so celebration by father. Whose son was dead and now alive. was lost and has been found. Okay. So do we see a repeated uh, message in this one? Oh, yeah. 
So over and over, we see the exact same point is made. All three parables, they follow boom, 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 and every single one of them says basically there's joy in heaven, there's rejoicing or there's celebration in heaven by God and by the angels when a lost sinner is repents and is found and is turned, right? They repent. Okay, now, we started with this statement here about the Pharisees, that the Pharisees grumbled, right? Now, how does this, par this p passage end starting in 25 to 32? Yeah. <laughs> Did you all catch that, that this was a repeat? Now we have the brother. And it says about the brother that he, he became what? Became angry. Why was he angry? Yeah, that's basically what it doesn't say that, but that's exactly what it was. He's angry at, that the, at the father's joy and the celebration for that wayward or repentant son. So at father's joy. Over repentant. I know, doesn't that sound like a 10-year-old or what? I know, and it's like, really, you've got to be kidding. Where is your love for a brother who was wayward, who had really lost his way? And, I mean, how many of us in our families have wayward people that when they come back that you don't just delight in that? I mean, how could you not? And the other children in your family or the other people in your family unit um, there could be some in there that do resent it because when they come back then you're so excited that they're back and they're like, what? I never left. I didn't do all these stupid things. I never gave you a hard time. I didn't blow all your money. I didn't, you know. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yes. Yes. This is why parables were such a powerful tool, and Jesus used them so often. Um, you know, partly we've learned earlier that um, he used parables also to kind of cloak uh, truth from those who did not have ears to hear anyway, right? but then to also better explain truth to those who did have ears to hear. So it's almost like those who did have ears to hear had a, a fine-tuning uh, uh, fork attached to their little ear that when Jesus began to speak, it was like ding, and they could hear. And they would hear everything he said, and they would go, oh, oh. And all of a sudden, things that were vague now become clear, right? But for the others whose hearts were closed down, who, who were filled with anger and were grumbling, and were um, not being obedient to God to begin with. There's a, another verse I found. I, I don't think I put it in my notes. But it was in John, I think it was, where Jesus says, basically, if you were of my father, you would hear my words, right? And, it, if you were, it, and because you don't hear my words, it's because you don't know my father. And that's kind of what goes on with these, with these Pharisees. They don't really know the father, you know, they're all talk, they're all legalism, they're all about 
following rules and regulations, but it's all for personal gain. It's all out of greed in their heart. And this is what Jesus is pointing out. So when he te teaches parables and they're hearing them, their ears do not hear or understand. They don't comprehend. And so there was kind of a, a double-edged sword to this idea of the parable. But the interesting thing is this. If amongst those Pharisees there was even one, like the lost sheep, right, who would have an ear to hear, he could hear and he would understand. He would hear these messages and go, wow, that's a compassionate God. You know, the, the idea, the concept, I think a lot of the concept of most people even today is the Old Testament God is a God of wrath and anger. He's a mean, angry God, right? We hear this all the time. I think often the Pharisees seem to think that too. It seems like they operated underneath that idea. And so here what we see Jesus doing is showing them the love and the compassion and the fun side of God, the rejoicing, the celebrating. I mean, what a, what a broadening perspective of who their God is to them if they would just listen. To know that this is a God who's full of grace, full of forgiveness, full of abounding love, full of compassion, desires that every single one be saved. It, he, this is an amazing picture of, of God for them. Okay, so we have the beginning, the grumbling, and at the end, again, more grumbling, basically. So we have bookends on this particular chapter where Jesus kind of makes a comparison with the Pharisees, and then in this, this uh, uh, parable, he makes another comparison that they're basically the brother was just like the Pharisees, right? So there's kind of a pattern that begins to develop here. So that takes us through 15. Now we're going to do 16, which is going to take a little longer. I've got quite a bit to cover in th this one because it's really an interesting segment here. Um, we start with 1 to 9. Uh, we didn't title this. What do you want to title Luke 15, by the way? Tell me again. How did you title chapter 15, you guys? What are your titles? There you go. That's an excellent title. Joy in heaven over sinner, a sinner who repents. Excellent. Any others? Perfect. Rejoice in the loss. Okay. All right, so let's put a title up here. Uh, I'm going to add God in there because it's about God. God rejoices. over lost sinner. Who repent. And if you when you when we get to the place where we're going to look at the flow of thought on these chapter titles in our in our at a glance chart, it's really neat when you hit this segment here where you see this little this little statement about God and how he's rejoicing. You know, everything up to that point is leading into it, telling you kind of the gospel plan and who Jesus is and all the things that he did and so forth. And then as you move along, it gets closer and closer. It begins to develop more insights about, um, you know, part of it had to do with insights about what the kingdom of God was, about, about, um, um, about salvation, about 
uh, who Jesus was, right, and what he, what he, all the miracles that he did and so forth. But then all of a sudden it starts to actually narrow itself down into this, this precision point of taking you right to the gates of heaven and right to the gates of decision. And it's will you be one who enters into the kingdom or will you not? Right? And where will you spend eternity? And so this, this chapter 16 is going to say now, this is, this is the reality here. You're going to have a choice to make, and you need to know where are you going to be spending your eternity, right? Okay, so now we're going to look at 1 to 9. Again, it's a parable. And what is this parable? How did you title it? Pardon? Okay, the shrewd manager or the unjust manager? Parable. The shrewd, the unjust and shrewd, shrewd, um, unjust manager. Something along those lines, right? Um, I and I had a bad manager praised for shrewdness. <laughs> I was a little more lengthy, but but this is fine. This works just good. Okay, so he's he's praised now. Let's let's talk this one through a little bit. Tell me what somebody explain this parable to me. How the, how did they parse this all out? What what was going on with this man? Okay, for one thing, he's squandering. Um, he had a job title for apparently a very, very, very wealthy man. Because one of the things I, one of the sermons I listened to was um, a guy was telling about how the reductions that he's going to make here in a minute, that each one was, you know, like dozens and dozens of years of worked for repayment that he just wrote off. That tells you how much the guy had already loaned out and how much, that tells you, this guy was like a multimillionaire or something. I mean, he was bigger than, bigger than life in money. So, okay, so he's, he's badly managing all this very ex extensive wealth. Mm-hmm. He got a pink slip. Did you find it interesting that the manager demanded that he go back and give an account for what he had done wrong? He wanted him to go back and assess things and come to him with a report. Where did, you know, he caught him basically somehow. It doesn't tell us how. But he caught him that he is, was doing these things wrong, these illegal things. And now he says, I need you to tell me all that you've done wrong so that I can fix it basically, I think is what he wants to do. But... What do you think about that concept? <laughs> in our world today, do we do that? If you're caught embezzling the money, does the boss say, go back and fix it, and then you're fired? Oh, yeah, you are quickly escorted. Why would you be quickly escorted? So that you don't do this, exactly. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, yeah, but you know, that's at least on the up and up and there it's all it's all forward. It's it's their business and they're telling you what they're doing and they're not sneaking around. This guy was sneaking behind his boss's back. 
right? And, and the boss certainly had not approved this, right? I mean, do you think the boss had said, sure, go and do this? No. So, okay, so he, he's squandering his possessions of his, of his boss, his master. Um, and so the, now he realizes that he is going to be in big trouble because he's not strong enough to work. He doesn't want to be a beggar. He's got too much pride for that, thankfully. Wish we had more of those in our world. Um, and then four, he says, I know what I shall do. What shall he do? He's going to juggle those books. <laughs> but now tell me, why does he do that? Does he tell you why? There you go. So he devises a scheme. And I, you know, all I thought to myself when I first read this at the beginning, and I still hadn't parsed it all out yet, but I thought, man, if he just worked half that hard to be honest at his work, he wouldn't have gotten fired to begin with, right? But, of course, that's not the point of the story. But, you know, it just came to my mind. <laughs> okay, so, but he basically he's saying, I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. So you're exactly right, Martha. He wants them indebted to, the, to him in some way so that they will find, he will find favor with them later when he's basically out on his ear, right? Okay, now, he, he does this little book conniving thing, right, of juggling the books, giving people discounts, humongous, by the way, you have to look at this in uh, some uh, commentary or research books on this, but the amount of discounts that this guy was giving was massive. Dozens and dozens of years of work to repay for so much, of, you know, the, when you look at the percentages of what they owed and so forth. It was, I was surprised when I heard it. It was like, wow. Okay, so then w the manager, when he finds out that this is what the, the um, uh, manager has done, what does the master say? He praised him. Now, that one, did that throw you for a loop, you guys? Oh, yeah, kind of threw me off for a little bit at the beginning. But here, again, back to your principles about interpreting parables. How do what are you looking for? Do you need, do, does all this storyline have to, mean something that has a direct relationship or a direct uh, point? No. You're looking for one primary point, correct? So in this, what do you think was his primary point? If he, his statement is, his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. Then what does it follow with? Four. Do you see the word for? Circle it, highlight it. For means a therefore, and if there's a therefore, what is the therefore, therefore, right? So he's giving him a conclusion statement. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than who? Than the sons of light. Now, who are the sons of light? That would be us, right? And so his point is not, I approve of what he did. It's not, I condone what he did. What it was is, this is very interesting, it kind of makes me think of a really shrewd businessman who's been out there in the world for a long time and he sees a clever move, even if it's dishonest and even if it's underhanded, he's like impressed. He's like, oh, good one, good one. <laughs> you figured that one out, buddy. Now, nice going. So he was impressed by the shrewdness, not by what he did, but the fact that he developed a plan. Now, what was his plan? To plan for what? 
his future, right? Okay, so if he's shrewd, and that shrewdness um, was was used in order to plan for his future because he had a future coming. So now, even though this looks like it's all about money, it really now just switched to something else. What is the major subject here then? About planning for your future. You have to have your mind on eternal things, godly people. And that's what Jesus now turns the, the, the corner on because then he says, and... I say to you, now that is a very, in fact, box that in and highlight that in some way. I, for, I say to you. This is like, thus saith the Lord. This is one of those kind of statements. Jesus is making emphatic statement. He's saying, and I say to you, make friends for yourself. How? Means of wealth of unrighteousness. Now, what is that talking about? What is the means of unrighteousness? So that when it fails, they, they who? Those friends that you're going to make, right? Will receive you into what? The eternal dwelling. So if there's a means of wealth that's unrighteous that's going to fail, what is that saying? There you go. Earthly wealth, find th things that are temporal of this life, they're going to fail, right? How do they fail? Because when you die, what? You can't take it with you, right? I'm sure you've heard that before. Although some people want to, they try, right? But you can't take it with you. When you die, you don't take it with you. And he's saying, so when, when the wealth of unrighteousness, and so what interesting thing to me too is this is almost, this is a, a, a pretty bold uh, fact or truth that Jesus is actually revealing to us is the idea that money is actually uh, should be viewed by the Christian as really that which is unrighteous in many ways. Not that it can't be used for righteousness, right? But that if we view um, money as something that's really good and we value it and it becomes kind of an idol to us or something that we treasure after, then we're putting ourselves in danger. So he's kind of giving us a little warning signal here. And he's calling money here uh, wealth of unrighteousness, just meaning that it's of this earth, of this world. The wealth of this world is, in God's, in God's perspective for this storyline, is unrighteous. So that when it fails, and it will fail because when you die, it's gone. He says, then they, who is the they now? The friends. Now, how have you made those friends? If you're looking at the storyline of this man who got sacked with a pink slip, um, but what he's done is he's, he did what to secure his future? He forgave debt in order to gain favor with people that he could be friends with and that would welcome him in when he had no place to go, right? So he was, he was basically playing a game to secure his future, to, to ensure that he had somewhere to go and something to fall back on. That's how they're living. But everything that they're doing is for what? F perspective. And perspective-wise, temporal, eternal, what is theirs for? Temporal, right? It's for this earth. It's for this life. So they're, they're doing all that they're doing. All that his, he was working for was for stuff for right here, for right now. And guess what? When he dies... Remember that other parable that we did way back about the man who had a, he had a barn and he had stored up so much? And he says, well, 
basically, to this very hour, your life will be reckoned to you, that you will give an account for it, and, all, and all, someone else is going to inherit all that you stored up, right? And this man is storing up for this temporal thing, and he's banking on th these friendships that he's making, but he's doing it by stroking, by in, you know, endearing them by doing them favors, right? By being nice to them, by being kind to them, by helping them out, so to speak. Not with his own money, of course, with his bosses. But still, nonetheless, he was shrewd in doing that. So now Jesus is saying, you and I be shrewd. Now you tell me, turn this, obviously what this is not saying, and tell me what you, this obviously is saying. Because there's a couple of ways to, to go with it. Let's look at some points of learning. So we've got this bad manager, a shrewd, unjust manager, or a bad, I even put bad in one of my titles, bad manager. Um, what Jesus is not saying for you and I. He wants us to be shrewd, but does he want us to, to lie and cheat and steal and rob our, our so what is it, what it, because remember, never violate your known doctrines, right? So if you're not going to violate your known doctrines, if Jesus is saying to you and I, I want you to be shrewd like this man is shrewd, believers, that's what exactly what he says, right? And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of righteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal kingdom. He's saying the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. So he's literally saying he wants the sons of lights to also be shrewd. But what he's not saying is what? Do not be dishonest. Um. Okay, now, that is what he's telling them to do or not to do? Okay. Okay, so, so Jesus is, okay, let's do it this way. Jesus is simply saying, yeah, be, being a good, okay, so let, let's do that on the next part of the list. He is simply saying, though, about the master, what? Concerning the master, what was his point? When the master responded, he said he was being shrewd, and he was impressed by that. So that's all Jesus is saying. He was simply impressed by the act of being shrewd. So this is interesting. So that means being shrewd can be either good or bad used, right? I mean, there you go. Depends on how you apply it, whether or not your shrewd being shrewd is good for good or for evil, right? Okay, so Jesus is simply saying the master was impressed with shrewdness. Okay, so that's what he, Jesus is not saying and what he is saying. So now let's do points of learning. This is an analytical list. We've done these several times in this study. Let's do one real quickly here. What do we learn about money then? Fun just some fundamentals. What do you learn about money in this particular one? Yeah. Okay, money has value. Money has value. And can be used for good or 
evil. In, in other words, it's benign, right? It, it, in it, inerrantly of itself, money is not neither good nor evil. It's just money, right? So it can be used for either good or... It's, it's, a, it's a resource. It's a means. It's a means to an end. Let's put that. Right? Money is a means to an end. Now, what end you go to, whether it's for good or bad, is determined by what you're working toward, right? Okay? When you use wealth, according to this, it shows us that there c wealth can be used for the temporal life, right? But what else can it be used for? Eternal. So, wealth can be used for temporal or eternal values. Correct? All right. Um, so, Jesus then is, is exhorting us to do that exact thing, to use it for. Jesus wants us to do what? To use money for the eternal. All right. Tell me how you go about doing that. This is the fun part. Tell me how you go about in your life every day using your money, your finances, your resources to build up alliances and friendships for eternity. And do you ever really look at your money in that way, that that's what your money is all about? What you're doing is building friendships for the future. Okay, missionary work such as support missions. Okay. What else? Oh, come on. It can't be that hard. Yeah. Express love by giving to others. Okay. And it, and it doesn't only have to be money either, by the way, even though that is specifically what this passage is covering. You guys are really quiet today. Is it me because I'm low energy? <laughs> I'm semi-wearing off on you. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, sinus surgery stinks, doesn't it? <laughs> okay, so tell me, what else do you use your money for? Oh, all right. To build the kingdom. So, uh, to build the kingdom, meaning like winning souls, right? Or um, exhorting other believers, right? It can be either or. It depends on which side you're going on, right? And everybody has their own calling in life. You know, if you, if you purchase a gift for a friend, I can tell you this week, you guys have blessed me, blessed me, blessed me. The meals, the cards, the texts, the phone calls, the, you know, the offers of meals. <laughs> you guys have been so great. Martha coming and helping me out by teaching last week. I mean, that was like phenomenal. It's such a burden off my mind to know that everybody was taken care of while I was out for surgery. Those are 
Those are bonds of alliances and friendships that you're building when you do that. When you express that kind of love and support, I, I, you know, it doesn't have to be financial. In this case, I didn't need financial, did I? What I needed was what you gave me. And that, too, I mean, I think it can be incorporated into this. It's just an additional add-on. He specifically was speaking about money because that was the problem with the Pharisees. But any kind of resource, any kind of ex expression of love, any kind of use of a talent or a skill. I have a friend who cuts my hair and gives me great discounts because she loves me, right? Um, that's just a blessing that you give to the household of faith because you love them, right? So when you're doing that, what does he literally tell us is going to happen here in verse 9? What are you actually doing for yourself when you do this? Have you ever seen that the things that you do nice, you know, either for winning souls or for encouraging the household of faith? There's, there's some verses, and I didn't write them down, but um, that talk about do good unto the household, do good unto others, especially to those of the household of faith, right? You know, w when you and I are blessing one another and are building into our relationships with one another, and often it is by financial help. If you've got a person who has less and you have more and you're able to give, that's fantastic. I mean, people who are financially in need love that when you're able to help them in that way. Um, and they feel so indebted to you, but they love you because of it. It's not that you're buying their love, but just they see your compassion like Jesus had. They see that compassion. Or... Um, Maybe it's just spending the day with someone who's lonely, or maybe it's um, sending a card. I love all the cards I get in the mail, by the way. They're so fantastic. Um, you guys, that kind of investment in one another, when you and I die, what it says here that um, the means of the wealth of unrighteousness will fail. When we die... Everything of this temporal life stays behind. But what goes with us? What does go with us? Our legacies, our relationships, right? Those people that we have touched and who have come into faith maybe because of it, or who have grown in faith because of us. Those people are, you know, I expect to see every one of you waiting for me, or, or I'll be waiting for you, one or the other, right? At the, at the pearly gate, <laughs> And when you come and you're welcomed by all those shining, happy, rejoicing faces at your arrival, it's because those are people that you've invested in and you have loved well and you have used the resources of this temporal life wisely, shrewdly. And if you're not doing that, then you are missing out on so much. There's other parables that talk about uh, with that he will, uh, the talents, for instance, I think it's coming up in Luke 19 where it talks about he's going to give a, a certain amount of talents to one and then if he's faithful with that, then he'll get more in heaven. It talks about this exponential increase of, of what you're going to be given if you're faithful with the little things, right? Um, living this life with an eternal perspective is probably the hardest thing for us, is to keeping our eyes set upon the eternal glory and not on this temporal. It, it's, this world sucks you in. 
And if you aren't really alert to it, and if you're not really um, just constantly, I think, reminding yourself, this is the temporary, this is not the forever, right? You lose sight of it, and sometimes you get wrapped around all kinds of things and investing money and time and energy into things that really are not going to have any value later. They're not going to go with you. You know, I think of all the, the things that I do sometimes and spend so much time in, and <coughs> they're not going to go with me. Unless, of course, those things were done that express love and compassion and kindness, right? People maybe are brought into faith because of them. So keeping all that in mind. So these are just points of learning about this little parable here. The parable is not that he was condoning the bad deeds of, a, of this bad manager. What he's saying is the, shrewd, the act of shrewdness of preparing for his future is what Jesus honed in on. So he took a, a parable that almost looked like it was about money and switched it on its head and said, no, I'm talking about eternity. And I want you to pre be preparing for eternity. Build the kingdom, winning souls and exhorting believers. Use your resources wisely. Use your, I'm going to put it here, money wisely. Right? Okay, good deal. And yes, yes, yes. Well, what's very interesting is you start back in 15. He's talking to the the Pharisees and the Sadducees as well. He's talking to all of them that are present and even the crowds. But here he specifically turned and he said he was also saying to the disciples. So he's including the disciples as being present in this conversation. And that's what's so cool about parables. He can talk these parables to both Pharisee and Sadducee and the one who has ears to hear will hear, right? And that's exactly what he was doing. And so Jesus was... But now what he does after he teaches this parable, which is rather cloaked, about money. Now, th this is what I find very interesting, too. It's what Jesus is saying. Look, they're sneaky. They're clever. They're, they're wise. They, they figure it out. They get around things. They, they know how to. You know what? I want you to be equally ambitious on doing righteously in a shrewd way, but do it righteously. And do it for eternal future rather than a temporal future. That's the contrast, right? They for, they for temporal. They do it for temporal. You do it for the eternal. Okay. Good deal. Do you, does everybody have any insights or questions yet about this particular parable? Yes. Right. That's what I said. W when you highlight, when you keyed that word they, what is the word before it? The word friends. So basically, the I'm going to translate the word unrighteous wealth to earthly money, okay? So the friends I'm going to make using my earthly money are going to be those friends that are going to welcome me into heaven one day. If I'm using my money to help you, to bless you in some way or fashion, and I brought you into faith or I've strengthened your faith, 
through however I've ministered to you, right? Then when you die and you're in heaven and I come in later, you're going to welcome me in because I have built an alliance with you. I have built a bond with you because I used my money to help you, to benefit you as a believer, and or to bring you into faith because you were unsaved, but now you're going to become saved. Therefore, that friend is speaking of a Christian friend. So you might write Christian over the top of that word. You're, Christian fr- you're building Christian friendships. That's what it's basically talking about. This man was making earthly friendships that was going to ha- handle a temporal situation for him. You and I, Jesus says, I want you to keep that same thought in mind and you be shrewd and build your Christian alliances, your Christian friendships, your Christian bonds, so that when you go into heaven, all those Christians that you've blessed and been good to, all those souls that you've won, they will greet you when you come into heaven. Got it? Read. Is it? Fo- are you all following? Yes. Of course. Right, because, and that's the whole, the whole reason I think he actually calls it the unrighteous wealth because he's simply saying this, that's, this money that's temporal of this earth, that's not going with us. It is unrighteous money. It actually, um, you know, in the kingdom to come, I bet our whole perspective about money is going to be, there, I bet there, well, first of all, there probably won't be money. I mean, we won't need that value system there. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see how many of us have built for that future financially through our money specifically. Have you used your money to honor God and the kingdom work? Are you building up the household of faith? Are you winning souls to God? And are you using your money and resources to do that? And that's what the call is there. Oh, that's awesome. Amazing. See, I love it when you see those story, and the storylines are, are inspiring to the rest of us. You know, sometimes um, we feel like we're doing so little or we aren't really making a difference in the world. I'll bet they felt the same way for a long time. All of a sudden, some event came or some uh, uh, situation rose up in their life that God gave to them, and they, they shined in it, you know, and they did it for God's glory, and they will re- reap reward for it. The same is true for each one of us. You know, you don't know how much you have impacted any one person. Sometimes you don't realize it until years later even. I remember getting a letter years back from a little girl that I had taught in, a, in a, uh, my church when I first got saved, Girls in Action, I taught, which was a missions training through um, a Bab- the Southern Baptists. And um, I taught 
this little girl, and she sent me a letter and just went on and on about how I impacted her life and how much an, uh, of a change that I had made in her and how, what I had done, you know, to spur her on in her faith and where she was now at that time. She was a young junior high. It was probably a junior high project. They said, write a letter to someone who's impacted you. I had no, I could, first of all, I didn't know how she got my address, but she found me and she wrote me this beautiful letter and I'm thinking, wow, I hadn't forgotten about her. You know, it's just a you don't know what the impacts are sometimes that you have on people, but you do. Every single day you make that choice, what you're going to do with your time and resources. Okay, so let's go to the next one. Now we're going to move to ninth, is it uh, 10 to 13? This one should be simple. Basically, oh yeah, let's do this one. That's what we got. 10 to 13, that's a good idea, thank you. Yeah, I probably won't need all this, but let's do this. Okay, now, let's, what do you see going on in 10 to 13? We got to hurry through this, you guys, so talk fast. Right, so it's actually, he's actually making some fact statements, isn't he? This is about, this is a fact of life. This is a principle that's true, correct? So we're, we're into reality. We moved from parable now into reality. And he's saying fact one. Fact number one. He said, uh, basically, your character is your character. That's my interpretation. <laughs> if you're a dog, what will you do? If you are a duck, you will? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, you're going to be who you are. So if you are faithful, if you are faithful, you will be faithful. <laughs> okay, so that's my title. If you are faithful, you will be faithful. Fact number one, your character is your character. So if you're going to be faithful in little, then you will be faithful in much. Likewise, if you are unfaithful in little, what? You will be unfaithful in much. Therefore, what? If you're going to be unfaithful, what is he saying in verse 11? That's right. Why w and why would I give you and trust you anything with, with heavenly riches? Now, what is he saying there? What is he at least hinting or alluding at there? That's right. And whether or not you'll be in that next one of eternity with God in heaven, right? If you are in this life faithful, then you're going to be faithful and you're going to be given heavenly riches but if you're unfaithful in little in this life why would anybody give you riches from e for eternity which in essence he's saying you won't be in heaven right because the unfaithful do not enter into heaven so fact number one your character is your character that's in 10 to 13 uh, the first part and then he goes on to say about what about masters what does he say Yeah, you can not serve two masters, all right? 
another way, he says, you cannot serve God and, and what? Yeah. You cannot serve God and money. That's in verse 13. All right. Now, so if you cannot, why? What, so how does he then parse that out further? What does he say about it? Yep. You're either going to hate one and love the other or devoted to one and you'll despise the other. It's, it's, it's one of those um, facts, again, it's another truth fact, that you, you cannot serve two masters. You're going ha- to have to, you can't walk a fence. There isn't, there isn't, you can't have one foot in God and one foot in the world and walk that fence and do it without falling. So this is fact two. I love these fact statements that he gives like this. Okay, then he's, then let's go to 14 to 18. What does Jesus now do? We've already talked about it, but what is he doing in this passage here concerning these Pharisees? He's rebuking them. That's pretty simple. Jesus rebukes them. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. Yes, they do. (laughs) And what does that tell you about their heart, right? Yeah, okay. So fact number three is what? In verse 15, God what? God knows their hearts. Yes. (laughs) It's totally wicked. (laughs) Okay. And then also another fact he he points out about the uh, Pharisees is what? In verse 14. That's right. They are lovers of money. I just love the way he's just hitting this bam, bam, bam. Fact one, fact two, fact three, fact four. Did you notice? I think it's really neat the way this lays itself out here. Fact one, fact two, fact three, fact four. I think we have one more to go. Oh, we've got two more to go. Okay, so fact four, they are lovers of of money. Now, we already parsed this out, but just to repeat it, what's going on here about the law? Why does he bring up the law anyway at this point? And money, and how, what does that have to do with the money? How does the law and money and these Pharisees' mindsets kind of all tie together? What did they, what is their mindset about money or wealth regarding their understanding of the principle of the law? What does the law tell them? If you obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, I will curse. And so if they're being blessed by God with wealth, what has their conclusion come to then concerning that? That's that's right, that they are pleasing to God, and therefore God is blessing them. Now, Jesus is going to point out that this is a, a false uh, conclusion on their part, right? So that's what he's doing there. Um, uh, his, his pleasure in me is basically saying, uh, if I gain wealth, it's a blessing from God, indicating his pleasure in me. So they work very hard to appear righteous to men and to justify their greed by that reasoning. So the wealthier they are, the more righteous they are. That's how they're viewing it. Isn't that sick? I mean, that really, um, 
it's kind of, um, kind of it's, a, it's a totally different subject, but it's like people who think that if you get sick, then you're sinning, and that you know sickness is causing is caused because of your sin. That is not always true. Now it can be true, but it's not always true. As a matter of fact, I would say most of the time it's not true. <laughs> but there are times when you can get sick because of that. But the money thing is how they were co they were coming down to it. They were lovers of money, and they. Um, they viewed their money as a blessing. Fr yeah, from God and uh, validating their righteousness. But it was wrong. That is how they viewed it. They are lovers of money. They viewed money as a blessing from God and validating their righteousness. So Jesus is now going to teach them. Now, he says now another fact for them. In verse 16, what is it? What does Jesus say about what they're doing concerning uh, their entrance into heaven. If they they think that because they're rich, that's an indication that they're righteous with God, right? It's the external evidence to them that God is pleased with them, and therefore they're getting into heaven. But then Jesus turns right around and says about them, "What are they doing?" In verse sixteen, the the, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time, the gospel, of the kingdom of God, has been preached. But what does it say? And everyone is forcing their way into it. Now, what does that mean, forcing their way into it? How are they forcing their way into heaven or into uh, the kingdom? You have to reason it through a little bit. How do they think they are righteous with God? By doing what? Practicing the law, by keeping the law. So the more legalistic they are, the more law... Uh, legalism that they that they endure under and that they put under other people and that they enforce upon people but that they think they themselves are keeping they think that is what gets them into heaven and Jesus is literally saying that's you are you are forcing your way into heaven by doing that that is, is that how you get into heaven do you get into heaven by keeping law has the law ever saved anyone according to Romans never so Jesus is I literally Re rebuking them. They think keeping law gets them um, in, and they and they are literally they're they're imposing these very harsh rules and regulations and laws upon other people. We saw that back in Luke 11 earlier. So they force their way into heaven. So this is fact number three. They force their way into heaven. by keeping laws but the problem is what but the laws are what yeah 
they're their laws. They're not God's laws. That's the, that's the biggest issue in this particular segment here, 14 to 18. He's saying, you're not actually keeping God's laws. You're making up your own laws, and you're imposing these on people and making it difficult for anyone to enter into heaven, according to Luke 11. He says, you're, you're not only missing heaven yourself, you're also causing other people to stumble and not go in. Okay. Um, then fact number s- oh that was four or five sorry and then fact number six is the last point that comes up in here in this particular segment which is about um, the marriage thing so what was it that was the point that we learned about marriage everyone who divorces his wife marries another commits adultery so what is his point Yes, that's true. That's a good point. I like that one. Yeah, idolatry and love of money go together. So that is very good. Okay, so in fact, number six, they are not keeping God's laws, are they? Concerning marriage, what were they doing? They were allowing divorce and condoning it. and They were using it to their advantage, you know, at every turn. And so they weren't actually doing that. And the other thing they were not doing is keeping God's law the the holiness laws of the subject of covenant in particular you know i mean there's a lot of other laws that could have been listed but marriage is a covenant and god's law of covenant is is unbreakable it's that's why marriage is supposed to be forever and if you break that law you're actually distorting god's picture of the gospel of his relationship with his people. So fact number six is they do not keep God's laws. They, they were allowing divorce. They did not. Even though they were forcing their way in, but they really were not keeping God's law. They allowed divorce. Okay, and that's a huge, I mean, there's a long list of of teachings on what that all entailed, but we won't go into all that right now. Okay, so now let's move on to, um, so we did 14 to 18, now let's do 19 to 31, and we're almost done, and we've got five minutes to cover all of this, but I think we'll be okay. Now, the only thing we're not going to get to do really is do this all this drawing, which I really would have loved to have done, but it's probably more important um, that we get to the essence of why this particular parable was get or this particular story, rather, this truth story, this account is given to them. So tell me what is the storyline here? Let's, let's identify the characters. Let's start with La- Lazarus. What do we know about Lazarus? He's poor. Poor and, and also um, physically he's in mis- misery too. Yeah, he endured righteously, wasn't it, didn't he? He endured his suffering righteously. Now, how do we know that? Even though, because it doesn't say that in the words, does it? How do we know he endured righteously? Yeah, because of where he ended up. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, 
At his death, he entered a place of comfort. That's right, Abraham's bosom. Okay, and that's in verse 25. Okay, so that tells us about Lazarus. Now let's talk about what, now what, one of the things that we, we kind of have already done it by looking at this, but the Pharisees, let's make a list on them real quick. Because I think it's going to be a good comparison just to see it side by side. Who are they? We, first thing we know, they are lovers of money, right? What else do we know? Yeah, they are self-righteous. Uncompassionate. The opposite of what Jesus is, huh? And how are, how are they living? Living in luxury, right? And wealth. Lovers of money was verse 14. Uh, I'm going to put on here this, that 1142 to 52, so you can have that as a point of reference to go back and look at again. They're not, they're also concerning God's law. What are they doing? Yeah, not keeping God's law. I mean, what about that one, um, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Or do unto others as you'd have others do unto you. They aren't doing any of that kind of stuff, are they? Um, not listening to the law and the prophets either. Okay, now let's do the rich man. Let's compare him. And let's see how come we think Jesus told this particular storyline. What about the rich man? What are we told about him? How was he living? Yeah, living in splendor and luxury. Okay, uh, or excess even, you could say. All right, what else do we know? Yeah, ignored Lazarus. You guys are really quiet today. Did you have this much trouble with them last week, Mar Martha? No? <laughs> Maybe that was a yes. I need help too. <laughs> I know, really. The guy's right in his face every single day. He walked right past him and he never bothered to help him. Um, so, uh, concerning the law, therefore, the rich man is what? Not keeping law, is he? He's not helping his fellow brother. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Ruth. Yeah, the story of Ruth and Naomi. Yeah, exactly. At his death, where did he go? <laughs> oh, that's compassion. At his death, he entered a place of torment. 
part of me doesn't feel sorry for him either. <laughs> okay, now, what do you see when you look at these lists now? When you compare the Pharisees and the, and the rich man, aren't they pretty much lining up? They're identical. Do you think Jesus had a reason in making this particular parable? Do you think he was hoping they would see themselves in him, right? How cloaked do you think this is to them? Any or, or very plain? What was their response at the end? Well, I guess it doesn't have it at the end of this. You're right. No, you're right. You're right. It isn't at the end of this one. I'm sorry. But, okay, so, but we know that their, that their response is not positive, right? They're not, they're not repenting. They're not engaging with him. They're not saying, Lord, we've sinned. We're, you know, they're not like the lost son who came back and confessed all his sins to his father so that the father would bring him back in. Rather, uh, what we see, though, is the rich man, at the end of his death, he entered a place of torment. Now, what do you learn about the tor that place of torment? It's called Hades, right? What do you learn about Hades? It's far away from Abraham. So this, this place called Hades has two compartments, right? And I'm going to draw this and this and this. Do you know what this is? This is the earth. This is the place called Hades. And this is the place of torment. So I'm going to make it red with fire. And this place here is the place of comfort. So I'm going to make it blue. Does that make sense? Okay. We know that from other scriptures that Jesus said that there would be the sign of Jonah. Do you guys remember that back in Luke earlier when we talked about the, it's Luke 11 also? He says, I will not give you a sign except the sign of Jonah. And back in Matthew 12, 40, specifically he, Jesus tells them about the sign of Jonah, that the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, are you catching it? So in the heart of the earth, there, here we have the earth, the heart of the earth is a place called Hades. Hades has two compartments, right? The other thing that they said about it is there is a chasm that separates those two places. Now, you almost can't see that, but can you see the little white right here? This is the chasm that separates the place of torment from the place of comfort. Are you getting it? All right. Now, the next thing uh, that we did not look at, but I'm going to take you to it, is in Luke 23. Jesus is on the cross. Remember? There's two thieves on each side of him. What does he say to the, the thief that is repentant? Today you shall be with me where? In paradise. Well, if in, in Luke 11 and Matthew 12, we just heard that Jesus says he will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, where did Jesus go when he went into the belly of the earth? Hades. Because when the man dies, Jesus is going to take him with him. In that place, he calls it what? Paradise. So the place that he's going to go, Hades, is, can be called, the, there's the, the place of comfort, the bosom of Abraham, the 
Jesus, uh, Jesus will go there, or Jesus will be there, will go three days and three nights. That's Luke 11. And then he says, um, Jesus uh, says today you will be with me in paradise to the thief. And that's in, um, where was that one? That was in Luke 23. And we're coming up on that one, which is going to be fun. So Luke 23, 39 to 43. Now, you looked up Acts 2. What did Jesus say there about this place called the belly of the earth or Sheol or Hades? Say it again. That's right. So Jesus also says his soul will not be abandoned. Jesus will not be abandoned there. In other words, he's going to resurrect, right? That was an axe. 27 and 31, all right? So that's the place the place of comfort. So let's do it this way. We'll title it this way, the place of comfort. Now there's another co- area which is called the place of torment. Now what do we learn about the place of torment? What do you learn about it, the place of torment? There's agony, a place of flames or fire, right? Yeah, there's a chasm between the two, a chasm separates. the two. Okay? And that's what we see in the blue, right? Or in the white between the red and the blue, this little white circle. I wish I had yellow or something. Maybe I'll make it green. How about that? That'll show it a little bit better for those of you at a distance. The green is the chasm. Okay? There's a chasm in between the the place of torment and the place of comfort. And this chasm separates these two compartments. And what does that tell you then? When people die, where do they go? They went to a place called Hades. Now, we don't have time to go there, but when I teach this normally, I go through a a much more detailed pattern. I take you through all the Old Testament. David speaks about going to the place of Hades. Jacob speaks about going to the place of Hades. Many of the Psalms make reference of this. This is a a well-established truth about the Old Testament. It's a place where the dead exist, a place for the soul, a place for the wicked and those who forget God. It's also a place where a godly Jacob expected to go there, David expected to go there. No man also can deliver himself or save himself from the power of Sheol, right? Now, before Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, before the blood was shed, could any soul from the Old Testament days go into the presence of God in heaven? No. So where did we go? For from the days of Adam and Eve until the days of the cross, what? 
we went to Sheol. Sheol is a holding place for the place of the dead, the good and the bad, the, the righteous and the unrighteous. But there's just two compartments, okay? Now, what we didn't go into in our homework is that once Jesus uh, resurrects, he, he, he spends those three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. He presents himself to Mary. Remember, he comes to Mary in the garden and says, don't touch me, I've not yet ascended to the Father. Do you guys remember that? So we know he had not yet gone to heaven to place the propitiation at the altar. The, the blood had been shed, but he had to do three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Now he presents himself and he resurrects. Then he returns, he, is, um, uh, he returns and he appears and presents himself over those days, uh, right, until the day of Pentecost, right? 40 days giving convincing evidences of his resurrection. Then what does Jesus do after that, after those 40 days? He ascends, right? There's a little verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, that says that when he ascended on high, he did what? He took with him a host of captives and set them free. Who is the host of captives? Those who are believers. Why can they now go from the place of comfort to the place of heaven? Because the propitiation has been atoned for at the altar. Isn't that exciting? I never really get so excited when we talk about this one. I love it. This is one of my favorite, favorite te teachings to do. And it's really fun to timeline it, too, and just show all the, the exact events. When we did the Gospel of John, that's how we did it the last time, I think. And we just showed the unfolding, you know, Jesus and presenting himself to the different disciples and at what time of day and, you know, and who and how and how he had to... Um, uh, manifest himself cloaked at first so that they would by faith believe and it was it's just a beautiful teaching when you get to go into the into the details in that way however for this lesson the purpose to understanding that that um, there was a place of comfort and a place of torment and that when you die you will go to one place or the other and that once you're there once you're in the place of torment can you leave you cannot cannot leave. You cannot leave either place, wherever you land, wherever you are placed. That's where you stay. You cannot, Abraham could not cross over. He could not cross over to Abraham, right? So you're fixed in that place. In other words, to die once after this to face judgment, there is no second chance after death. It's not purgatory. You don't get to pray yourself out of it. You don't get to pray for someone else to get out of it. Once you're there, your, your fate is sealed for eternity. So your decisions about how you're going to live your life must be made in this life, right? Whether you're going to love God, whether you're going to honor him with your money and finances and wealth, this is what the whole point is. So when he makes this comparison between the Pharisees and the rich man, and it's a tit-for-tat on their behavior and their attitudes and, and the way that they treat people in life, and then he says, this rich man, when he died, where did he go? He went to the place of torment. And so what do you think this should have been saying to these Pharisees? Yeah, it should have been a wake-up call to them immediately to go. And I want you to know, he was not cloaking this. He told this plain. This was clear. Do you, can you understand why? Why this would not be a parable? 
He does not want them to be caught unawares. You have to understand your decisions in this life are going to matter for eternity. And the fear of God needs to be put in you if you don't believe that. Because what you decide in this life, how you live your life, how you spend your money is an indicator about your relationship with God. It isn't how you get to God. It's the indicator about whether or not you actually love God. All right. Any other questions? I wish we'd had time to do more on that, but